Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's been Yomin Rose and myself, Gedali Gutentag, with Mishpachah's Home Front, a series covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Binyamin, good to behold your distinguished presence on my screen. Gedali, it's nice to see you and to see you in uh, good spirits as well. Yes, certainly. I think listeners will detect a certain raising of the spirits, justified or not, over the course of this podcast. Let's begin with something we discussed yesterday. And really, we raised the question as to why it had taken so long for Hamas to start weaponizing the hostages in terms of turning it into distressing videos, propaganda videos, and shooting them over to Israel. We asked that question why we hadn't seen any. And actually, that was a, a well-timed question because within a few hours, we had not one but two videos of hostages, very different types. One of them was a horrific and traumatic video of a, this, the poor woman still in Hamas captivity, castigating Bibi, cursing him in the most violent terms and frenzied terms and pleading to be brought back. And that was obviously a Hamas propaganda effort. Within an hour or two, that, that had been subsumed by a very different scene, which was the joyous return of a, a young soldier, Ori Megiddish, to her home in Kiryat Gat. And she was apparently freed in some daring radio's details we don't know yet. So what to make of all of this, right? Obviously, Hamas are not sitting there listening to Home Front, the podcast. I would contend, Binyamin, that this was the interplay between the two. It wasn't obviously coincidental. Hamas knew that Israel was about to release the news of this daring rescue of a hostage from them, which would be very embarrassing to them. And so they decided to preempt that with some a release of something that's going to be embarrassing and distressing for Israelis to see. Does that analysis make sense to you, Benjamin? Not only does it make sense, but it's classic Hamas, and we're going to be seeing more of that. The only good thing that I can say about that is that the more they have to resort to propaganda, the poorer they're probably doing on the ground in the military campaigns. I would also add that yesterday at 2.30 in the afternoon, there were sirens in Yerushalayim, perfectly timed for the start of the cabinet meeting at the Knesset in Yerushalayim. So uh, that was another uh, attempt at psychological warfare by uh, Hamas. And uh, we have to get used to it. It's important to understand that that's exactly what it is, so that uh, we don't allow ourselves to get swept up by it or to get carried away. I think that it's important to understand the context of who we're dealing with. I mentioned yesterday that Hamas warlord Yichia Sinwar. Yichia Sinwar spent, I think, over, over 20 years in Israeli jails as security prisoner, and he knows Israeli society inside out. He spent the time in that, he spent his, those years watching Israeli TV, obviously taxpayer funded, eating good Israeli food, better than most Israeli taxpayers get to eat, learning the weak points. And he knows it's not beyond him, not beyond any of the operation to say, well, let's time this for a cabinet meeting so that we can embarrass them and just generally get under their skin. I think many people don't know that, or maybe some people don't know, some listeners, that sandwiched in between your lengthy media career, you had an equally distinguished one in finance, which is the perfect segue to the next item, the economy, the Israeli economy, which uh, is your speciality. So, Gedalia, thanks for bringing that up, because I think it's important to relate that everything we hear in the mainstream media is about humanitarian issues in Gaza. Well, Israel has its own humanitarian issues as well, aside from the fact that we also have at least a couple of hundred thousand people, if not more, who are internally displaced by the war. We also have large swaths of agricultural plots, mainly in the north, where basically the produce is rotting on the vine or rotting on the trees or not being collected because of uh, security issues. 
uh, people can't get to their farms because of the constant sirens. You know, can I just interject there by saying that in the South, I've told the area has actually spoken for what purpose of one assignment. So a bunch of farmers in the Gaza border region and the area is where Israel gets a lot of its cherry tomatoes and a lot of its lettuce. So hence, I don't know if you've noticed, there is very little lettuce to be had for love or money in the country at the moment. That is because it's not just affecting agriculture in the North. It's very much a kitchen table issue based on this fighting in the South. But anyway, I interrupt. Well, since my wife does the food topping, so she's more aware <laughs> of exactly what's shortage and, and how prices have gone up and where. But yes, I do hear about it indirectly, no question about it. But I was saying before that a lot of foreign workers have gone home and Arabs aren't coming in. And that's a big problem. But overall, the economy, you're staggering. I was reading a report that was issued by Meitav Security Firm, which is one of the top Israeli investment companies. They say that the war is costing us $283 million per day. And they say that over the course of two months, and I'll get to why they use the two-month figure in a minute, the total cost to the Israeli economy will be 68 billion shekels, which comes out to $17 billion. It will lead to a 1.5% drop in the GDP, which is uh, basically a tremendous loss to the economy. The reason why they crunch the numbers at two months, uh, hopefully they're being optimistic that this whole thing will be over and done within two months, which would be in time for Hanukkah, which would be great, especially if it ends in a uh, Israeli victory. But there's absolutely no guarantee that, you know, would, uh, the pace they, snail's pace they're going, who knows? I think they're being optimistic in two months and they'll probably have to revisit those figures. The reason why is because firstly, hundreds of thousands of uh, men are in the army uh, in Miluim. And since they can't go to work because they're in uniform, that's costing the economy. There are also costs of replacing ammunition. There are compensation for damages, losses of taxes, especially real estate taxes, because the real estate sector is slowed down. The solution they devised and came up with is that, and we've heard a lot about this, is it's up to the treasury to basically take money away from what was guaranteed in the coalition agreement, specifically uh, 13 billion shekels. And uh, that could end up being controversial because uh, a good chunk of that money was supposed to go to the religious parties. So I detect a little bit of political cynicism in the recommendation in that that's adopted the money that we have to reach for first. Israel has other resources. Obviously, everybody has to pitch in. There's no question about it. I'm sure the religious parties would be the first to say that we'll donate uh, our share to the cause. However, there are a lot of other options. Uh, the Bank of Israel, as I've mentioned on previous podcasts, has a stash of over $200 billion in foreign currency, and they can uh, release some of that to the treasury. It's something that's not done often, and it's often a last resort also. But the money is there, and uh, one of the reasons why central banks keep foreign currency is specifically for national emergencies. And if we deem this as a national emergency, then I think they've got to loosen their purse strings as well. What is the role actually of the Jewish community overseas or in money that comes from overseas? Because if you look back in Israeli history, there was the great Israel bonds, which, you know, at times national crisis, Jews in New York would sit across America, across the world really, would rush to flood Israel's economy. They couldn't come and help themselves, but they'd write generous checks. I don't know if that venerable institution still exists. But I wonder if there could be a way to leverage the great goodwill and the sense of emergency overseas in order to do what's necessary for the Israeli economy. Just a thought. Adalia, it's interesting you should mention Israel bonds. I always remember from my youth, the Israel bonds, Nidre appeal, 
at uh, all of the schools that I used to go to when I was growing up. So Israel Bonds is something that is a bit near and dear to my heart. Uh, I do want to add to that, that since the war started, Israel Bonds reports that they've raised more than $200 million to help Israel. And I was looking at, you mentioned before, my investment experience. I took a look at the interest rates on the bonds. Now, uh, I'm not a uh, financial advisor anymore, so I don't make any commission on this, but uh, the rates are rather attractive. The market rates, you can get 5 to 6% on short-term, one-year, two-year bonds. So for anyone who is interested and would like to help the war effort in that way and also earn a few percentage of interest on their investment, it's something they can look into. Indeed, a lucrative mitzvah. So there's, there's room for a bright spot from me as well. And I think it's actually part of the coming up to a month since the attacks on Sohaz Torah. So according to some analysts, looking back in hindsight, we things could have been far, far worse. One of the things we have to appreciate, there's a video that's worth watching. It's from a guy called Yair Ansbacher, foremost, he was a reservist in the special forces. There's an iconic photo of him breaking down something like 24, 36 hours into the conflict because he was there literally on the front lines trying to push back the Hamas attacking forces. And there's a photo of him coming across in one of the kibbutzim around uh, Gaza, coming across a Shabbos table that was abandoned in the middle of, you know, a Yom Tov table abandoned in the middle of the slaughter under the uh, Hamas attack. And so that's the photo of him. But what actually is subsequently came out, this man is a very interesting person. He's actually a, an educator and a public activist of the conservative from the Datil Omi community. And very interesting to listen to a video in which he literally sketches out with a piece of paper and a marker what he thinks was meant to be the full-scale horror of the Hamas plan, which was avoided. And in short, this was meant to be the Hamas seemed to have hoped that their attack would trigger a similar attack in the north from Hezbollah's elite Radwan unit, which is a commander unit. And people have to understand Israeli geography. The majority of Israel's sensitive new military installations are actually in the south of the country, you know, opposite Gaza, or in the north of the country, within a, a striking distance of, the, of Hezbollah on the northern border. And the idea would have been to literally drive across the country and cut off those bases, and basically to ice in a pincer movement to ensure that Israel's military was too busy actually defending attacks on its air bases and military bases to respond and to protect the population centers. And, and another element would have been there they hoped to trigger an uprising amongst Israeli Arabs and the Arabs of the, of the West Bank in the, of the kind that we saw a few years ago in the last operation. In other words, this could have been far, far, far worse. However bad and traumatic, this could have been far worse. And he says that it was all decided in those opening hours where the command broke, but the individuals fought back. And he says, look, there's a nace going on. He suggests that we internalize that as well as the sadness. So, I mean, whether that is eventually proven to be from military analysis, that is sound, well, it remains to be seen. But I think as an example of there's a lot of, amidst all the tragedy and the suffering, there's a lot of chesed to look out for as well. And in that spirit, Binyamin, I wish you a good day and we'll reconvene tomorrow.